Thank you for listening to Franklin City Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information on Franklin City Church, please check us out at www.franklincitychurch.com. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Jeremiah 29, 4-7. You may be seated. All right. Well, good morning, and uh, thank you, Seth, for reading uh, the scripture for us this morning, and Joshua for leading our music. Um, If you do have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Jeremiah 29. Uh, What Seth just read is where we are going to be uh, starting at this morning. We're then going to jump into then Matthew 28 and the Great Commission, where we will spend the majority of our time, and then we will dabble in Leviticus just for fun this morning, okay? So this summer, these three kind of pre-launch services before Franklin City Church officially launches on September 10th, and we all start gathering together on a weekly basis, these three services, we've been trying to cover some really big, huge topics, okay? So our, our kind of mission, vision statement that we exist as a church to first behold, to build, and to bless. So to behold God, to behold God, to build up the body of Christ, and then to bless the city. And so um, we have been trying to jam-pack as much as we can into each of these sermons and services because we do think it is important for us to kind of all be on the same page and to all have the same kind of laid foundation before we start meeting regularly together as a church and as one new body. So first and foremost, we as a church exist to behold God. Uh, We are worshipers. We are beholders. In all that we do, we want to put God before you. We want to show you who he is and what he is like and what he has done. We then exist to build up the body of Christ. And we talked last time that we know ultimately Jesus is the one building his church. But many times a God works through the people of God to accomplish his purposes. And so as we are building one another up, we are to be on guard, to guard our unity, to celebrate the diversity amongst our gifts, and to all be then contributors to the maturity and the growth of a healthy uh, uh, church, okay? So we first exist to behold, then to build, and now we arrive at bless. Today we arrive at bless. Bless the city. And I'll be honest, these, these topical sermons, this topical approach to preaching is, is, is not my favorite and probably not what I feel the most comfortable doing. Primarily as a church, we are going to be going through books of the Bible and preaching verse by verse. So starting September 10th, we'll, we will be starting through the book of First Peter. So if you want to be reading ahead to know where we're going, First Peter is where we will start September 10th. And then we will just preach verse by verse through that book. But this morning, we are talking about blessing the city, blessing the city. Now, there are a lot of ways that we could talk about that we could bless the city, right? And the goal this morning is not going to be to give you a a step-by-step kind of GPS direction on how to arrive at your end destination of blessing the city, okay? Because I think it's all going to look very different on an individual basis and on an individual family basis and on an individual city group basis as to how this actually plays out in the day-to-day because God has gifted us differently and he has stirred in us different passions and he has provided us different opportunities. So in regards to how this looks like on the ground, living out, blessing the city, I think it's going to look differently for each of us. So today it's not going to be the step-by-step directions like turn left here and then in 10 miles take the exit ramp and then in five miles arrive at your destination, okay? It's not going to be like that. This is going to be a zoom zoomed out kind of trip overview uh, a sermon on where we should be headed as a church and what we are aiming for when we're talking about blessing the city. Okay, so bless the city. You probably have some questions about 
the, the, the phrase city, right? Like why say bless the city? Why not say bless the people of the city? Or, or why not say bless the community? Or why not say love others? Or why not say do good to the poor? Like why are we saying bless the city? Well, we, we do use the word city for a lot of different things, and I'll be honest, I just kind of like the word city, and I'll try to explain why I like it, because when I say it, I have a certain meaning behind it, okay? We obviously named the church Franklin City Church. That is the new church that is starting here on September 10th, uh, and many of us are being sent from a church in Greenwood called City Life Church, so we obviously do like the name city, all right? We like to use it, but this is what I mean when I say city. Because to me, when I say the city, not only do I mean the people in the city, I do very much mean that when I talk about bless the city, I'm talking about bless the people of the city. But not only that, I'm talking about the culture of the city, the art, the education, the politics of the city, the military that protects the city, the economy of the city. And so when I talk about blessing the city, I do mean loving our neighbors and serving the people of the city. But I also am talking about establishing a church that has a faithful gospel presence in the city of Franklin for generations to come, that as God blesses is us, we in turn will be a blessing to the flourishing city. And that as more people join our gospel community and gather together and live life together and love one another and are generous with one another, that the city would in turn also be blessed, that it would overflow out onto the city and that the city would get a little glimpse of what the future heavenly city is going to look like. You see, we named the church Franklin City Church because to me it is a reminder of God's redemptive story. What started in a garden is going to ultimately culminate in a city. We read in Revelation 21 verse 2, it says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So in between creation and the garden and in between eternity future where we will be a part of the new heavenly city, we now have this cultural mandate that was given to human beings on earth. We read about it in Genesis 1, 28, which says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion. So theologians, this is a quote from Pastor Bob Thune. He says, theologians call Genesis 128 the cultural mandate. God is mandating that humans will create culture. Adam and Eve will produce children. Those children will create families, and those families will band together into cities and social networks. Those networks of human beings will reflect all the aspects of human culture, language and art and music and food and philosophy and theology. So you see, when I say the word city, and when I say Franklin City Church, it is a constant reminder to me of the future heavenly city to come, as well as the cultural mandate that we have been given by God to be fruitful, to multiply, to create, and to cultivate culture here on earth. So let me also clarify what I mean when I say talk about city, because I don't just mean the city of Franklin, all right? When I say bless the city, I mean the city where you live and where you work and where you go to school and where you hang out. And so it's not like in my mind I've drawn on a map the, the city boundaries of Franklin and only want us to bless things that are inside the city limits. I'm talking, when I say the city, think bigger picture. I'm talking about wherever you work, wherever you live, wherever you play, wherever you go to school, wherever you come into contact with people. That is our city that I am talking about. So now let us look at Jeremiah 29, and we will just look at, at one verse that Seth read, Jeremiah 29, verse 7. It says, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And this verse is just going to springboard us on to where we are going, so we're not going to linger long and dig really deep into this passage, but I do want to point out a couple things before we move on. It is not an accident that God's people are in the city that they are in, in this passage. God says, it is the city where I have sent you. 
Now the people of God here, they had been exiled to Babylon to be ruled by King Nebuchadnezzar and to live in a fallen culture that did not honor God as God. But God said, I was the one that sent them there. And this should remind you of then what we even read about in the New Testament, like in Acts 17, where we learn that God has determined the time and place where we should all live. So God is sovereign over the nations, and he is sovereign over individuals when and where they live. And so he has sovereignly placed us in this city in this time. He sovereignly was in control of his people being exiled to Babylon. Well, look, what does he tell them then? Does he give them instruction on how to overthrow this evil government, right? Uh, Does he instruct them to create kind of a self-sufficient subculture that that just kind of doesn't engage with the city but lives its own separate life? Does he tell his people to just kind of use the city for all the good things they can get out of it but never actually give anything back to it? No, he says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. And now we are not talking about welfare like we might know of the welfare system here in America. No, this word welfare is the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom. Shalom means peace. Shalom means prosperity and plenty. But it also has a much deeper, richer meaning as well. Here's what Kevin DeYoung says of the word shalom. The word shalom points to a situation in which God's authority and rule are absolute, where his creations, including human beings, exist in right relationships with him and with each other, and where there is no separation between God and man because of sin. Now listen, until Jesus returns and restores all things, no city is going to perfectly and completely experience shalom. But we should be seeking it. We should be seeking the peace and the prosperity that we can have uh, here in the city. And we should be seeking the peace we can have with Christ. So we should be good citizens pouring and invested in our society, contributing to society and to culture. And we should then be a, a church that prays for and seeks that more people would be freed from worshiping the idols that they may not even realize they're worshiping and that they may have the joy in submitting to the absolute rule and authority of Christ and that they would experience the shalom and the peace that was purchased by the blood of Christ. This is what we should be praying for and seeking that more people would experience the peace they can have with God through Christ. So look, verse seven then, it says, and pray to the Lord on the city's behalf. Well, this morning we are starting what we're calling 21 days of prayer. So starting today, we we have about 21 days until we launch September 10th. And we want to create and cultivate an intentional time where all of us together are praying for the church and for the city. And so what we're going to be doing is sending out daily emails reminding you to be praying, but then also giving you topics of specific things that we can all be united in and praying together on a daily basis. So today it seemed right, if you got the email this morning, it seemed right that we, today we should be praying for the city. We should be praying for its peace. We should be praying that it will flourish. And ultimately we should be praying that more and more of its citizens would kneel to the authority of Christ and experience the shalom that is found in him. So bless the, ch- the city, church. Bless the city. But listen, bless the city, pray for the city, seek the shalom of the city. Those all sound like nice concepts, but they can kind of be like up in the clouds, right? What does that actually look like, boots on the ground, day to day? So to look at this more, let's turn to Matthew 28, verse 18. Matthew 28, verse 18. And this is where we will spend the majority of our, the rest of our time this morning. In Matthew 28, We know it as the Great Commission. You're probably familiar with this verse, and anytime uh, I come across a verse that I'm familiar with or I've heard preached on multiple times or anything, I think it's important to to read through it a little bit more slowly and to to prayerfully consider uh, what is being said here. So Jesus has risen from the dead 
And he gives now the great commission to his disciples in Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came to them, Jesus, sorry, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So let's look at this passage and break it down a little bit, all right? Let's look at the structure of the passage. I think this is important for us to to know the structure of it so we don't miss some important points, okay? What we see is that there is a truth, there is a command, and then there's a truth at the end, all right? It's almost like a, a truth sandwich, okay? There's truth there's command and there's truth. Now I realize I just made a rookie mistake and I mentioned food in a sermon and I've lost some of you, but stick with me. Okay. It's a truth sandwich, but just stay with me. Okay. The reason I think it's important to think about this and know the structure, know that it's truth command truth is because us as human beings, I feel like when we read a passage of scripture and we see a command, we are so quick to jump to doing, 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 right? Like we, you probably read this verse and thought, oh yeah, this is the make disciples verse. Okay. We got to make disciples. All right. Uh, let's schedule a discipleship night at the church. We'll make some programs. Uh, we'll get people involved. I know everyone's supposed to have like a Paul and Timothy. I've heard that before, right? So we match people up. We get them in discipleship groups. Okay, we're making disciples. We can feel good about it, right? But listen, if we read this passage and we just look at the command, I do not think we will have the fuel that we will need to actually carry out the command. We have to understand the truths in this passage and the promises that are given as well. So let's slow down a little bit. We are going to get to talking about making disciples, but let's remember these promises and beautiful truths that are going to be what will fuel and sustain the making of disciples. So verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So listen, let me, let me rant just a little bit. If you'd be so kind to just let me rant a little bit, a little pet peeve of mine. When people talk about their salvation experience or their conversion, when they came to Christ, uh, they can sometimes phrase things that just, that just don't seem right. Okay. So someone might be giving their testimony and they're talking about, they were at camp or at church or with family and yada, yada, yada. And then they come to the point where they're like, And that's when I decided to make Jesus my Lord and Savior. Now, listen, if you've phrased it like that, that's it's it's okay. It's okay. Uh, There's there's grace there. Um, I I think I know what you're saying and I understand the heart behind it. And I've probably phrased it that way as well. But I do want us to consider what our words are saying when we're saying I made Jesus my Lord and Savior. You see, because we didn't make him anything. We didn't make him Lord. He is Lord. We did not give him authority. The authority was already his. Now, apart from Christ, we delusionally lived life like we were God and we had the ultimate authority. But the reality is he has always been Lord and he has always had the authority. We've just been living in rebellion against it. So let me just encourage us to maybe when we are phrasing those things, maybe instead of saying like, uh, I made Jesus my Lord, like maybe I, I submitted to his Lordship. My, my eyes were open to the truth that he is Lord. I don't know, something like that. Uh, I mean, we can show one another grace when we're sharing testimonies. Okay. But, but that is a little pet peeve of mine, I guess. So thank you for letting me rant. Um, But all throughout Matthew's gospel, all right, we see this idea that Jesus has authority in heaven and on earth. So if we would have been reading this entire book of Matthew, we would have seen example after example after example that Jesus does have authority in heaven and on earth. We would have seen that he had authority over nature by calming the wind and the sea. We would have seen that he has authority over disease through all his miraculous healings. He, we would have seen that he does have authority over demons by casting them out. We would have seen that he had authority over sin by forgiving it and releasing people from its guilt. And then he finally and ultimately demonstrated that he has authority even over death by resurrecting people and proving then also that the grave could not hold him. So all authority is already his. 
And what a beautiful truth this is. Because listen, if we skip over this truth, it will totally change how we go about making disciples. If you forget that all authority is already his, this will distort and change how we go about making disciples. Because listen, we are not being sent out to conquer and win back the world for Christ. We are being sent out by the one who has already conquered. And God's kingdom is already here and it will be fully realized on Christ's return. But we are not sent out to conquer. We are sent out by the one who has already conquered. Look back at verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. So make disciples, make disciples. Okay, we're getting to the command part, okay? What is a disciple though? I mean, this isn't a word we commonly use. You know, it's, it's kind of a church word now that only people that have grew up in church really know what a disciple is. The term disciple partially means a student and a learner, okay? Someone who's studying under someone and learning and growing. But even more than that, it means a follower, someone who's following after someone, right? So Christians were called disciples long before they were called Christians, right? And so this is why you might hear me often refer to, instead of us as Christians, as followers of Jesus, right? That's the same as saying that we are disciples. We are followers of Jesus. And so when Jesus called his disciples, it was a call to follow me. And not just to follow me, but to abandon all else and follow me. That is the call to be a true Christian and to be a disciple. It is the abandoning of everything to follow after Jesus. But unfortunately, in our culture and in our society, the term Christian has been used for so many things and put on so many labels and everything's, you know, a Christian this, Christian that. And there's so many things that use the word Christian that are just not Christ-like at all. But listen, we are called to make disciples. We are called to make followers of Jesus, not just convert people to Christianity. So we know God calls us to make disciples. We know we are to be going out and helping others follow Jesus. But when we get to what this um, looks like in everyday life, we sometimes aren't doing this, right? We know we are commanded to do it, and many of us are, but a lot of times we we forget about it or we just don't do it. So why aren't we making disciples? Before we talk about how we make disciples, maybe let's talk a little bit some reasons why we aren't making disciples. Well, one reason I think that we don't make disciples is I first think we are intimidated by the term right? This is why I don't like to use the term disciple. You'll probably hear me talk more about a follower of Jesus, okay? Because I think the term disciple, since it's not a word we use in everyday language, it can be very intimidating to us. So when I say, go make a disciple, and you hear a disciple, whoa, like, that sounds like a big deal. That's, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I need a seminary degree before I do that. Or maybe I need to learn more theology before I do that. Or maybe I, you know, I don't know enough of the Bible to be able to do that. Like, make a disciple. That, that can sound so intimidating. And so because we are intimidated by it, we end up doing nothing about it. But when you understand disciple as a follower, then instead of me every week telling you to go make disciples and you being so overwhelmed and intimidated by that concept, couldn't we also use language that we use every day and say, go help others follow Jesus? Go help others follow Jesus. Mark Dever, as part of his Nine Marks series, wrote a book called Discipling, and the subtitle was How to Help Others Follow Jesus. And isn't this what discipleship is, right? Like we are helping others follow Jesus. And when we understand it in that way, it can be so less, it's so less intimidating, right? I mean, when I'm reading a Bible verse to my boys and they're asking me questions about it, and they ask really hard questions, by the way, okay? But when they ask questions about it and I try to answer them, that is in a small way helping them follow Jesus, 
And when I send a text of encouragement to a brother or a Bible verse to a brother, that is in a very small way helping him follow Jesus. And when we have people over and we, we share our struggles and share how God has been faithful and we share meals with one another and live life, that is in a small way helping them follow Jesus. And then when we take someone and intentionally pray over them, spend time with them, and continually point them to Christ, that is also helping them follow Jesus. So do not be intimidated by the phrase, make disciples. We are called to go help others follow Jesus. Well, why else are we not making disciples? Another reason I think we don't make disciples is that we are too busy. We are too busy. Author Dawson Trotman in his book about discipleship says this on our tendency in the church today. He says, the curse of today is that we are too busy. I'm not talking about being busy earning money to buy food. I'm talking about being busy doing Christian things. We have spiritual activity with little productivity. And listen, this is why as a church, we are going to be so intentional to not schedule a bunch of church programs and ministries and expect you to be here every night of the week, okay? We want you to have time to love your neighbors, to be hospitable, to have people into your home, and for you to organically disciple one another and help one another follow Jesus. Now, that's not to bash churches that have multiple programs and things going on each night. It's just I do agree with this quote that in general, we have, a li we have much activity with little productivity when all ministry is being done in the walls of the church and when all ministry is just being done by the pastors. There is much activity but little productivity. You are all ministers of the gospel. And so in the same way that as I've stepped into ministry, I've had to kind of reschedule my calendar and reprioritize what I'm going to be about and cut out some things from my calendar and make other things a higher priority. You in the same way as ministers of the gospel, Jesus commanding you to go help others follow Jesus, need to reprioritize and reschedule your calendar to make that happen. Because Jesus told you to help others follow Jesus. But where is this falling on your priority list? Where is this falling on your calendar? Are you too busy? What needs to be cut out of your calendar so that you can be helping others follow Jesus? Well, another reason we don't make disciples is I think we have the wrong motivation many times. The wrong motivation. So an example of this is uh, my oldest son, Jackson. He's uh, four, he's almost five, uh, but he really wants to play football. He's just kind of a recently, like, really wanted to be a football player. Now, I've worked in the ER the last five years, so that means for the last five football seasons, I've seen the worst case scenario of playing football. So it will obviously never happen for him because he has an overprotective dad, all right? I mean, maybe flag football, but I've just, I've seen too much, right? Um, so he really wants to play football. And then he's seen the Colts play recently, and he really wants to play in the Colts stadium. Now, to be a professional athlete takes a lot of work, right? I mean, obviously it takes some natural ability, but then just the hours and hours and years and years of training and practicing and working out and playing games, like it takes a huge commitment to make it to that pro level. People that make it there, I believe they have to have the right motivation. They have to have the right motivation. And I think that people that usually make it to the pro level, they have a love of the game, right? No one's forcing them to be out there. They just love it. So they grew up as a kid playing ball every day because they enjoyed it. They loved it. And then as they got better and they experienced some success, they got a little closer to the pro level. They saw that once they got there, it was going to be all worth it, right? So the right motivation for many athletes is a love of the game, and then as they get closer, seeing that it's all going to be worth it. <clears throat> but as I talked to Jackson, I quickly realized he might be having some wrong motivation, wrong motivation. So I realized that he had seen a highlight of football players winning a game and dumping the cooler of Gatorade on the coach's head. <laughs> Which also made a lot more sense why he was so adamant that he wanted me to be the coach, okay? 
So he was willing and his motivation to practice every day, to train every day was so that one day he could win so he could dump a cooler of Gatorade on my head. Now, that sounds cute. It's pretty cute. I'm just not sure that would have been enough motivation to push him through two a days and, you know, the years of training to be a great football player. Okay. But this is what happens to us when we are wrongly motivated. We will quickly burn out unless we have the right motivation in making disciples. So you might leave here today after hearing a sermon about making disciples, and you might feel guilted into doing this, right? So you go out and you kind of begrudgingly start meeting with someone because you really just feel like you should, and you're kind of guilted into it. Well, I would say you're probably going to burn out with that motivation. Or maybe we really want to make a disciple and help someone follow Jesus because we want them to think the same way we do, right? We want them to have the same theological bent we do. We think we've learned a lot and we really just want to, you know, make sure they're thinking correctly about things. Or maybe we even want our church to grow, right? Like we want Franklin City Church to grow. So let's go make some more disciples so that our church can grow. Or maybe you're even thinking a little bit more nobler and you're thinking about the other person. You really want to disciple them and help them because you know it would just make their life that much better, give them more joy and hope and peace uh, to be walking with Christ. Now listen, none of those things are our ultimate motivation. None of those things should be our ultimate motivation. They will not fuel you for the long run. And John Piper has a famous quote, which he says, missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. The mission of the church to help others follow Jesus has an ultimate goal that there will be more worshipers of God that God would receive more glory and that people would just behold him more fully, right? It is a love for God and the truth that he is worthy of our worship that will motivate us for the long haul. That is what will fuel the mission of discipling in the church until he returns. It is a love of God and a knowledge that he is worth it. He is worthy of our worship. So how do we make followers of Jesus? Well, our passage goes through three points. We go, we baptize, and we teach. First, we go. We go as ones that are being sent. John 20, 21 says this, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So God is a sending God. God the Father sent the Son. God the Son sent the Spirit. And the triune God now sends us. And listen, this is what it means when we talk about living on mission or being missional. Those are kind of two words that get thrown around a lot and it can be confusing because people do use them in some different ways. But when we talk about living on mission or being missional, it means living your life recognizing that you have been sent and you have been given a task from God. We are being sent. We are to go and we have been given a task from God. So Pastor Bob Thune says this. He says, mission means moving toward others as God has moved toward us. Mission means moving toward others as God has moved toward us. So when Jesus says, therefore, go, he is commissioning us on mission. And we can learn from the example that God has set for us because he has moved towards us. We are to imitate that while we move towards others. So we can learn from God's example. So how can we learn from God's example in this and being on mission? Well, first of all, did God wait for us to come to him or did he first pursue us? John 1.14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus left the comforts of heaven to dwell among us. He came to us. 
So church, we need to wake up. The day is over when young people will just come to us, okay? The attractional model of church or the just come and see mentality of church worked in generations past when our culture was at least semi-Christian. But now that culture has shifted and changed, it is no longer the case. We can't just say, come and see, come to us. We need to go and tell. We need to follow Christ's example and go to them. Because Jesus' model is not just us sitting around and waiting for people to come to us. We must go to them. We are to leave the comforts of our Christian circles and subculture and go to where the people are. And so I really do not believe that the, the attractional church model will survive and thrive, kind of this cultural shift that we are seeing Some theologians have called it, we need more of an incarnational model, right? We need to go make the invisible visible. Isn't this this following Christ's example to make the invisible visible? Isn't, Isn't that what Jesus did? Wasn't he the image of the invisible God and we saw God's glory because we saw Jesus? So instead of just saying, come and see, I think churches, we can still say that, come and see, come and see, but we also need to be ready to go and tell, go and tell. We must then go proclaim the gospel, but we must also demonstrate the gospel. We must proclaim God's love, but we must also show God's love. And think of what Jesus said the two greatest commandments are. He said it in Matthew 22, verse 36, when someone asked him, teacher, what is the greatest, great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So to be on mission is to be moving toward others as God has moved towards us. He initiated, he pursued, he loved us, and he showed us his love for us by dying on the cross. He proclaimed and he demonstrated his love. He made the invisible visible. He loved his neighbors as himself. So when we love our neighbors, which includes your actual neighbors, okay, when you, what you think of about neighbors, that does include them. It also, when we talk about neighbors, includes your coworkers and your family and your friends and the strangers you might come into contact with. That all includes our neighbors. But when we selflessly love them, we are giving them a glimpse of God's love for them. When we selflessly love our neighbors, we are giving them a glimpse of God's love. We are making the invisible visible. And that is a beautiful Christ-like thing to be about. Now, a huge aspect of what it means when we say bless the city is this command to love our neighbors as ourselves. And all throughout the Bible, we see that God is a God who loves and cares for the poor and the outcast and the sojourner and the refugee. And he gives some really practical advice to his people in the Old Testament in regards to what loving your neighbor actually looks like. So if you do have your Bible and you feel adventurous, you can turn with me to Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19. We're just going to be there for a second, but I want you guys to at least see where this is at. Leviticus is at the beginning of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. It's the book that you get to and you stop your read through the Bible in a year plan uh, because you don't want to be legalistic about it, right? Um, So I know many of you maybe haven't seen Leviticus. It's there towards the beginning of your Bible, chapter 19. Now, verses 9 through 18 take us through a whole passage on what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. We're not going to go through the whole thing just due to to time constraints this morning, but I want you to see where this is at so later this week you can go back through and read it through because there are some really practical, applicable things on what it looks like to love your neighbor. Leviticus 19, verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. 
Now, the following then verses below even go through other practical things on how we love our neighbor. We see that we are told to love our neighbor with our words. We, are to, we are see that we are to love our neighbor with our actions. We see we are to love our neighbor by seeking justice, right? And that is how we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. But in verses 9 through 10, let's just get really practical here. Now, I, I realize... Um, Reading verses 9 and 10 might seem a little strange because I'm sure many of you, I don't think we have too many wheat farmers or people that own vineyards, so you're probably wondering, how in the world does this apply to me, right? But this was God's welfare system, right, to take care of the poor and the land. It was a way for people to not just give out free handouts. The poor still had to come and work, but God told his people not to harvest all the way to the edge of their land and leave some leftover for the poor to come and collect. So we can learn from this, these verses that one aspect of loving our neighbor is being generous with our resources. It means not harvesting to the edge of your land. Now, a lot of us don't own land, but it means not living all the way uh, uh, that your paycheck will allow. It means being generous with our resources. But unfortunately, we don't do this, right? We take our paychecks and we go and calculate what's the most expensive house we can get with this paycheck. Then what's the best car we can get with this paycheck. And then we just max out our budget and spend all the money that comes in. And then at the end, some of us even spend more than what we bring in. And then we look at the poor and those in need and think, I don't have anything left. I'm sorry. But to be a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus, means to love your neighbor and to be generous with your resources. It means planning and budgeting and spending in a way that you are not spending all that you bring in, but you have left over to love your neighbors and be generous with them. So turn then back to Matthew 28, but I hope you will keep going through Leviticus 19 in your own reading and look at some other ways that can be uh, applied to our lives um, to really love our neighbors. So back in Matthew 28, and as you're turning, let me remind you and reiterate that loving our neighbors is such an important part of being a follower of Jesus. Now, we will always preach a message of grace, right? Salvation is by grace. We are not saved by our good works, all right? But listen, because even though we are not saved by our good works, guess what? We are saved for good works. We are not saved by our good works, but we are saved for good works. And Martin Luther had a great quote where he says, God doesn't need your good works, which is true. Your neighbors do, he said. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbors do. So look back at Matthew 28, verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So helping others to follow Jesus consists of going, right? Being sent with a love for our neighbors. We are to then be baptizing and teaching them the word of God. We must be a people who, yes, are showing and demonstrating God's love, but then we also must be a people who are proclaiming it with our words. But listen, people are not projects, okay? People are not projects. We don't love our neighbors so that we can share the gospel with them. Okay. We don't just love our neighbors so that we can evangelize to them. If you think that way, I do not think you are truly loving your neighbor as yourself. They are not a project. They are a people that we need to be loving. So we don't love them so that we can share the gospel. We love them, therefore we share the gospel. And there is a difference in those mindsets. We do not love them so that we can share the gospel. We love them, therefore we share the gospel. Because if we genuinely and generously love someone, therefore we must be a people that shares with them the good news that God saves that God loves them and desires a relationship with them, but that everyone in our sin, we are separated from God. 
but that God so loved the world that he sent his son to earth and he dwelt among us, that he lived the perfect life of obedience we failed to live, that he died the death that in our sin we deserved, and he paid the penalty for our sin, and he released us from the power of sin. And three days later, he rose from the dead, defeating Satan's sin and death, and now he is reigning, ruling, and restoring. And this salvation is by grace. It's nothing that we deserved or could work for, but instead we receive it as a wonderful gift from God. And then we are to call people to repent and believe, to repent of their sin and their idols and their lowercase g gods that they have been pursuing and to trust in the saving work of Christ and to submit to his lordship. And then we call them to follow after him, to be a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus. We'll look back at our passage. I said that this passage was structured like a truth sandwich, right? Truth, command, truth. So we started with the truth that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. We've been given the command to go help others follow Jesus. And now we finish with another beautiful truth. Jesus said, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, I'm not sure there's another phrase that is so beautiful and so sweet and so strengthening than King Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, telling us that he is with us. And Jesus knows our hearts, right? Like he realizes he just gave this huge command to his 11 disciples, right? To go out into the earth, to go out into a hostile world and proclaim the good news about him. He knows that those disciples are going to be martyred and killed, right? For what they are proclaiming. And I'm sure these men who had no idea about the internet or about airplanes or about travel or didn't even, you know, had the whole world mapped out at that point, I'm sure giving the, getting this assignment from Jesus felt like the biggest assignment given to human beings in the history of the universe. And so I'm sure they felt a little overwhelmed. I'm sure they felt a little anxious. I'm sure they felt fearful, like to go into the world to all nations and make disciples. Like, how is this possible with just 11 of us? And Jesus knew they had to be scared. But he says, I'm with you always. And think about other aspects of your life, how just encouraging and strengthening and emboldening it is when someone else says that they're with you, right? I mean, think about any time you've done something new or maybe started a new job where you've been on orientation or you're, you're doing an activity that it'll be the very first time you've ever done this and you might be a little nervous and fearful of it. Doesn't it just feel so much better when someone is right next with you and it's like, hey, I'm with you. I'll help you. I'll go with you. I mean, think about, uh, I think about this way when I think about my son, Jamin, right? He's three years old. And right now he does not like to go into dark rooms by himself. So I will tell him to go grab something from his room and he'll go up the stairs and then he'll get to a hallway that's dark leading to his room and he'll stop. And he's kind of thinking, I can tell he's getting a little scared, a little feel fearful of this dark hallway. He wants to be an obedient son. He knows that his dad has asked him to go to his room to get something, but the dark hallway just strikes him with fear. And so he freezes. But what, what remedies this? It's when I go up to him and I tell him, I'm with you. And when he sees that I'm with him, a joyful courage overtakes him and he charges into the dark hallway with a childlike faith and because he knows that he has a good dad that is with him. Listen, the call to follow Jesus and to go into the world to help others follow Jesus is a scary thing. It's not a safe thing. There's a lot of unknown about it. There's a lot that God doesn't show us. We know what we're called to, but there's a lot of unknown in the day to day. And it can be scary. We can be fearful. We can be anxious about it. And I don't know what dark hallways you're maybe standing on the edge of today. 
I think even as a church, though, we are in a way standing on the edge of a dark hallway where we know what God has called us to, but we don't know exactly what it's going to look like, and there's things we could be fearful and anxious about. But may we as a church and you as an individual rest in and delight in and take comfort in that Jesus says, I am with you always. And so may we too be filled with a joyful courage and charge ahead with a childlike faith of abandonment, knowing that Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, has said, I am with you always. So in in concluding this, this summer series and this sermon this morning, let, re, let me remind you that we as a church, first and foremost, exist to be beholders of God, worshiping him, growing in our knowledge and experience of him, seeing him for who he truly is and giving him all glory. We must then be building up the body of Christ and loving and serving one another. And if those things are happening, then our hearts should be so full of love and grace that it should overflow onto our city and they should experience the blessings of our generosity and our service and our love. And ultimately, the city will be blessed if the church is carrying out the mission of the church and being obedient to Jesus' command to go and make disciples or to go and help others follow Jesus. So as we start this new season here, may we have a joyful courage and a childlike faith knowing and resting in that he is with us always. Pray with me. God, we come before you this morning in awe of who you are. In awe that that you came to earth to dwell among us. That you loved us, God. That you died for us. That you offer us forgiveness and grace and peace with you, God. And God, I ask that we would grow closer to you as we continue to gather together and worship you together. I ask that we would be a people that loves one another and builds one another up. But God, I ask that we would never be a people that stay inward focused only, but that the overflow of our hearts would spill over onto the city and that we would bless the city, God. I ask that we would love our neighbors and that we would help others follow you. So God, we thank you that on those days that we are nervous and anxious and fearful, that we can rest in and delight in that you have promised that you are with us always. We praise you, God. We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.